So our uh, first order of business, as I mentioned, is an update of where we are in the fundraising process for the position of, uh, that we're trying to create, or going to create, uh, the Director of Youth, Family, Life, and School Ministries. And if you didn't get a chance to see the uh, liturgical thermometers in the narthex as you were coming in, um, you would know that currently pledged is $86,000. Um, our our kind of dream goal was eighty. And uh, I, I understand that um, there's still kind of a fair amount that needs to be worked out and whatever happens on the accounting side. So that number is going to go up. Um, it's, it's <laughs> this is so exciting. It's hard to understate how encouraging and exciting this is. Um, and uh, I mean, I know that raises questions. Well, what about the extra and stuff that you don't need? Uh, no, we need it. Um, and, and uh, that will get slotted for this position as well. But kind of over and above, we're, we're going to use that to, uh, well, because youth ministry is kind of expensive, is, is sort of the bottom line there. And um, any and all money given over and above will just go to that. And so thank you so much. Um, God has been palpably involved throughout this process. It has been so exciting um, to see how he has worked uh, in and through us. So thank you very much. Uh, there's no good way to transition then to the book of Revelation. Uh, <laughs> um, but I guess we'll just count that as the transition. Uh, we're going to start in, for our readings, we're going to start in the book of Revelation and then I'm going to land on the Beatitudes. And the book of Revelation is one of those that uh, you can never really spend enough time on. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's like children, the more attention you give it, the more attention it demands. Uh, because it's complicated and it's weird and it's highly symbolic and a lot of that is boiled down to the fact that it is a, written in a genre that is pretty rare for the Bible. Um, and that genre is called apocalyptic literature. You can hear the word apocalypse or something like that. Now, we already have a problem here uh, because the word apocalypse does not actually mean the end of the world. Um, the word apocalypse from the Greek apokalypso, it just means uncovering. And when you uncover something, you reveal it, hence the name revelation. So imagine, uh, I don't know, if you watch The Price is Right, when they uh, uncover the car that you can win if you bid right or whatever, uh, they're revealing to you the prize. And apocalyptic literature... It has a few traits to it uh, that are really common. It's highly symbolic. So it's a good idea not to take anything at face value. It is generally not code. Code is something that has to be deciphered and cracked. Symbolism is a lot more rich. Code is very rigid. Symbolism is very flexible. Um, the only really code in the book of Revelation is the infamous mark of the beast. Um, and even then, John the writer get, tells us you should pay attention to this and try and figure it out. 
and spoiler alert, it's a reference to the Emperor Nero. Uh, so <clears throat> the reason why I say that, or bring all this up, is that when we read uh, the book of Revelation or we hear it read like we did, it's easy to immediately transport this to some sort of way distant future or something like that. And so it's common, uh, especially, and it's mostly an American thing, uh, or at least a Western thing, to look at the book of Revelation in one hand and a newspaper in the other and try to see how they interact or overlap. And, and I, I highly don't recommend that. <laughs> Because the book of Revelation, believe it or not, was not written to us. In fact, the writer, John, of the book of Revelation tells us who he was, to whom he was writing it in the first three chapters. It's a network of churches that were kind of spread out across the Mediterranean. And he was writing it to encourage and challenge these churches and also to serve as a kind of a warning. We don't have a lot of time to go into this unless we want to be here for three hours. Um, so I'll probably deal with Revelation at some point during my, uh, my Bible study that I lead in between services. But first, we, we just started Leviticus, so we got to get through that first and then a few other things. Um, by the way, Leviticus is cooler than you think, but whatever. So, his goal in writing to these churches is to encourage, to challenge them, and also to serve at, or, or to speak to the situation in which they found themselves. And if I could sum that up, it would be something along the lines of, buckle up, Jesus wins. And anything that he writes, as we modern readers and interpreters, uh, uh, as we read and interpret rather, we need to understand it from the perspective of churches in the thick of it in the Mediterranean. Which means that when we read, like we heard today, um, about those who have kind of passed through the great tribulation and who are now washed white and they serve God in his presence at the temple, this is, I think, best not understood um, as kind of like an end of days sort of thing, but as an encouragement for the people who are in the thick of it or are very nearly going to be in the thick of it in that moment. And I think most scholars, at least in the camp that I kind of fall in, um, would agree that it is some kind of Roman persecution that is about to sweep through the area, that if they endure, they will be victorious. If they cling to Jesus in this process, everything is going to be okay even as things fall apart and the world puts immense amount of pressure on them in the moment. In that sense, Revelation is both a challenge and an encouragement, but it is first and foremost to our ancient brothers and sisters in Christ. A lot of the symbolism used does kind of speak to what things might look like when Jesus returns. And over the next couple weeks during the church, at this point in the church year, we will talk about Jesus' return, so stay tuned. Well, it'll come back up. Um, is what I'm trying to say. 
But there's also immense amount of hope that, that throughout the biblical narrative and even in this very bizarre book called Revelation, that God does not leave his people alone. Even when you are pretty sure that God has left you alone. I'll say that again. God has not left you alone, even when you're pretty sure God has left you alone. That is a core teaching, a core fundamental value, a core fundamental theology that John, as he is writing to these churches, is trying to get across. Which, oddly enough, is a, has a lot to say about what uh, the Beatitudes really mean. Because I, I don't know about you, but if you've grown up in the church and you're familiar with Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes and the whole Sermon on the Mount, um, they're kind of weird. They're kind of out of place. Like Jesus just sits down and starts... Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. Are the, like, there's no story behind that. Like, we need context. What, what's happening here? So, if I could have um, the, the, the Matthew reading up on the screen, if you don't mind. We're going to walk through these for a minute. So, Jesus sees crowds. He goes up on a mountain and he sits down. Now, there's a lot we don't have time to get into this morning, um, but that's a not-so-subtle nod to Moses. Moses, who went up to Mount Sinai and from the top of that mountain received God's teaching, or Torah, and then gave it to the people. So his disciples are there, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, that's a very Hebraic way of saying that, by the way, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, or are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, actually, if we can go back to the previous slide, that right there forms a unit. Uh, there's some parallel things that are happening in these Beatitudes that would indicate that these belong together. And these are different from the next grouping because these describe a state of suffering and struggle. The next group describes a state of living well, shall we say, and they are both capped or ended with a desire for righteousness. Or they both conclude with this idea of righteousness. Now, what would uh, these indicate? So you have the poor in spirit, humbled. If you push the word humbled enough, you can get to the word humiliated. Beat down. There's a lot of different ways to think about that. None of them are good. Those who mourn, uh, I mean, if Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn, 
there's a strong possibility that he's talking to a, a group of people who understand grief in that moment. Which leads to a question, what are they grieving? What would they even be collectively grieving? Because this is probably not a uh, Jesus teaching on self-care when you've experienced loss. As good as that is, that doesn't make sense in the first century. <laughs> Blessed are the meek. Not the geeks, I wish, but you know, whatever. Um, the meek are again the lowly. Those who are not in charge. Those who do not, not know power or authority and more likely, those who have been at the business end of those who are in power and authority. Maybe those have been kicked around a little bit. Now you can see why people might be grieving. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger implies what? A desire. A desire for something that is not here yet. Just like if I am hungry for brisket... It strongly implies that I do not have brisket. Because if I had brisket, I would not be hungering for it. Now, when we, when we hear the word righteousness, we tend to think of like behavior. We're, we're not being naughty or something like that. And that's not quite what Jesus has in mind here. The word righteousness is a lot more broad than that. Uh, it... Uh, righteousness can often refer to uh, the righteousness of God, which is like his faithfulness, his willingness, his desire to make good on his promises. So think about the picture that this paints to whom Jesus is speaking. If they are the poor in spirit, the humbled, humiliated, those who have every reason to grieve collectively, those who do not know power and are very likely victims of power, and they are desperate or hungering, that's, that's very strong language, hungering for this, this moment of God's faithfulness, this moment for God to finally show up when it feels like God has abandoned his people. Well, now this is starting to make more sense. Jesus is speaking to a group of people who by this time have been waiting for generations for God to act. Many of whom, I, 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 it's fair to say, have probably wondered that may, if God is ever going to act. Who feel collectively alone. Because life in the first century was Brutal, especially if you weren't in charge. Now, this has a lot of interesting connections to the people to whom John is writing in the book of Revelation. Remember what I said, you may feel alone. <laughs> it may seem like God has left you alone, even though he has not. Which also tells us that when Jesus goes around and announces this good news, it's first and foremost for the people who need good news. Uh, now, if we can go to the next slide. 
Now we have a new group. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, uh, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the cheesemakers, by the way, <laughs> for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then he continues on for a bit. Now, if we can go back to that previous slide. This is different. Because it's not talking about future hope. Like if Jesus says, blessed are those who grieve because they will be comforted, he's speaking to a present reality that will someday be remedied. But now he's talking about a way in which people are in the world. Ways that we treat each other, ways we interact. In other words, he's defining what it looks like to belong to the people of God in Jesus. And lo and behold, this, this, is, his, this is how things have played out usually for the followers of Jesus. Mercy. Mercy is not just forgiveness, it's much bigger than that. Mercy is, is, is favor, it's grace, it's compassion, it's kindness. An act of mercy can be forgiving someone who harmed you, or an act of mercy can be giving food to somebody who is hungry. All of these are mercy. And in this new reality that Jesus has in mind, it is a group of people who are willing to be merciful, even to those who don't belong to them. This may sound more obvious to us today, but it was a radical concept back then. Back then, everything was very tightly tribal, and it was, took the Christians to break that up. The pure in heart, those who, who haven't spoiled their own souls, they get to see God. The pure in heart um, in the Hebrew Bible are the ones who can actually approach the throne of God. The peacemakers, not the war makers. Those who seek for peace wherever they go and wherever they find themselves. That would come to define this Christian movement that changes the course of humanity. But it doesn't even start with Jesus because even uh, back in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, when he's writing to these people who have been exiled, basically taken by force out of their homeland and brought to Babylon, he gives this wild and crazy command to pray for the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Why would you do that unless compelled by something much greater than yourself? It's sometimes worth asking, what's your Babylon? Who do you not want to pray for the peace and prosperity for? I mean, personal rivals, rivals at work, people you don't like, people that bug you, bad drivers, which is everybody here in Albuquerque. Um, political opponents, different ideologies. Take your poison, I suppose. But this movement that Jesus sets up is one that works different. And it starts with that first group. His message is good news to those who hurt and have need. 
whatever that need may, may be. If they're feeling crushed by the weight of their own guilt, that is 100% their fault. They, they are being crushed because, crushed rather, because they find themselves on the business end of power and authority. They find that they can't get ahead. They find themselves completely alone and isolated. They find themselves hungry. They find themselves unable to find any kind of meaningful work. All of these things speak to something that Jesus can do something about. And for those whom Jesus has grabbed and named as his own, we get to become the merciful. We get to become the peacemakers. We are transformed into the pure in heart. Now, there's a a, a catch here, shall we say. Because there are plenty of us here, perhaps, that aren't hungry, we don't feel isolated. We're alone. We have a reasonable position in life. It's not like we're finding ourselves oppressed. And I've met plenty of people, uh, I don't have anybody in mind here, but just kind of out and about who would tell you that they have no need. And here's the uncomfortable reality. In that sense, Jesus has nothing for you. Until he does. Because if you look at that first group of people, the people who are grieving, the people who are in great need, the meek, the, you know, I'm just throwing a bunch of words that all kind of go into the pot of words that you can translate out of these. Um, uh, Those who are basically in need, in desperate need. Uh, If you take the inverse of that, those who have the authority, have the power, have the food, have the company, have the family, have the community, and so on and so forth, all of that can be taken away from you in an instant. That all of the good things that we have in life, the things that we pat ourselves on the back for, the things that we've accomplished and accrued over time and made good decisions about, excuse me, decisions about all of those things are in a very real way temporary. Just like, and as it applies to some of the churches to whom John in the book of Revelation is writing to, many of them find find that they have enough. And it's causing a problem. Because they're unable then to recognize their great need. But a Christian is different, ideally. Because in Jesus we recognize that everything we have we can lose. Every way that we try to justify ourselves or tell us that we're fi- ourselves that we are fine and we're okay and we have enough, all of that is temporary and it's a gift from God. And so on this day, this All Saints Sunday, we recognize and remember those in our community, those faithful followers of Jesus that we have lost, who now rest with Jesus victorious, who, as they came to realize, found their need, who felt their isolation, their loneliness, their oppression, 
of themselves and whom Jesus was able to transform into something new and beautiful. The one who has that righteousness. That by his death, by the blood of the Lamb, they have been transformed, they have been made new, they have taken part in the resurrection already in their baptism and now stand in the presence of Jesus. Just like John writes to our faithful brothers and sisters of ancient past, today we remember those of the past year. And it can be sad, it can be hard, because grief is a real thing, but at the same time, this is, these are also the ones who are victorious in Jesus. And God willing, we will all join them in that same glorious day. Amen.